A warm welcome to First Move this Tuesday, the final day of the G7 summit in southern Germany with an important NATO gathering just around the corner. Both meetings laser focused on keeping critical military as well as economic aid flowing to Kyiv as the battle for eastern Ukraine intensifies and Russia steps up its attacks on innocent civilians. Condemnation being expressed around the globe after a Russian missile strike on a crowded mall in central Ukraine Monday that killed at least 18 people. We've got you all the details on the latest on that in just a moment's time. In the meantime, the economic consequences of war and sanctions on display in Russia. Debt agency Moody's ruling Monday that Russia is formally in default for the first time in more than a century. The result of a missed payment on $100 million worth of foreign debt. The White House also arguing that the default drama is proof that Western sanctions against Moscow are causing real pain for Putin and it wants to inflict more. G7 leaders also pondering a price cap on Russian oil exports, a move that could hamper Russia's ability to continue to fund the war. The practicalities, however, are challenging, and we'll discuss that shortly in a moment too. Oil, in the meantime, rising today amid new concerns about global supply. The UAE admitting it has little room to pump more. French President Macron says Saudi Arabia's production is stretched to the limit as well. Energy stocks moving higher on the news, helping U.S. and European markets recover after a softer session on Monday. Asia also higher too. A day of reopening rejoicing, let's call it that, after China slashed its mandatory COVID quarantine period for incoming travellers by more than half. All the details on that story just ahead. But first, President Joe Biden due to land in Spain ahead of what could be the most consequential NATO summit since the Cold War. It comes hot on the heels of a G7 meeting in Germany where oil price caps and output challenges topped the agenda. Let's bring in Fred Pleitgen for all the latest there. Fred, you and I were talking about it yesterday. The practicalities mm. here are a challenge as much as perhaps the theory may make sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think the practicalities certainly are a big challenge. And then also there are the European G7 members who they really seem lukewarm, uh, if you will, to this idea because they also uh, fear that it could actually backfire. Now, first of all, the big problem with a, with a cap on prices for Russian oil is obviously how do you enforce it? on a global scale. And that's certainly something uh, that is being asked here uh, at the G7 summit, certainly something that especially the European nations are asking. They're also saying if a move like that is announced, that could backfire and actually drive oil prices up even higher than they already are today. And of course, especially Europe right now is really reeling from those very high energy costs of Russian gas, but of course also of Russian oil as well. And then you have the problem of unity within the European Union. It was quite interesting because Olaf Scholz was actually asked both about a gold uh, embargo against Russian gold and then also about this price cap for Russian oil. And he said it's something that really needs to be discussed in the European Union if European countries are going to make a move on that. But of course, we remember that the European Union has already formally put in place an embargo on Russian oil. But that has so many loopholes in it because of countries like Hungary that want to continue to buy Russian oil uh, that it's really not as effective as many other countries would like. So it certainly seems very, very difficult. And, you know, being here in Germany, a country, of course, that is very dependent on Russian fossil fuels and is really feeling the pain uh, right now and the fear of possibly having this giant industrial apparatus that you have here in the most industrialized country in all of Europe. 
it really is something where they want to be very, very careful on how they tread. And if they try to make a move like that, like, for instance, a, tr a price cap, they already seem to be uncomfortable uh, with, uh, with banning Russian gold uh, as it is, Julia. Yeah, and the last thing that they want to do really is take a measure that increases the economic pain for buyers perhaps more than the seller, in this case Russia, particularly at a time where unity amongst the group is so important and at times could be uh, increasingly fragile. The reality is while they debate, while they procrastinate, Ukrainians mm. continue to die. And we saw that <coughs> just the latest today yep. with the shopping mall that, that was attacked. What was the leader's response on that, Fred? Mm. Well, all of them were outraged uh, by uh, what happened there in, in Kremenchuk. They called it an abomination. You heard the French president, uh, obviously the British prime minister as well, finding some very strong words uh, after that took place. Um, and, and then, of course, all of them said that they are going to continue to support Ukraine militarily as long as is necessary with, of course, first and foremost, military assistance. Now, they didn't really go into the details as to what exactly will be provided, but there were certain things that certainly did seem to seem to come through and did seem to become clear, like, for instance, the U.S. possibly buying a missile defense system uh, that could help the Ukrainians prevent uh, things like what happened there in Kremenchuk. Uh, from happening in the first place, because, of course, we have seen a big uptick in uh, Russian missile, missile strikes throughout the territory of Ukraine, and obviously some pretty key areas of Ukraine and some cities, quite frankly, of Ukraine um, have been hit uh, over the past couple of days, especially. And then you have countries like Germany, like France, of course, who were seen as a little bit reluctant to provide some of that heavy weaponry. But that actually is coming through now as well. The Germans obviously providing some pretty heavy and sophisticated howitzers that have now reached the front lines in Ukraine. And of course, the French for a while now have already been providing howitzers as well. The U.S. also saying they want to provide additional multiple rocket launching systems. Of course, they had four in that first batch of those uh, rocket launchers called HIMARS, High Mobility uh, um, uh, Artillery Rocket Systems. And they say they want to provide four more of those in the not too distant future. And that training is actually already ongoing. But I expect more details are going to happen there at the NATO summit, because, of course, as far as military things are concerned, that'll be the main focus there as that summit is set to get underway with President Biden arriving very soon, Julia. And literally as you're speaking, Fred, we are seeing and showing you live pictures of Air Force One landing in Madrid ahead of that summit. So uh, the timing of your comments there couldn't be more apt, I think, as you can see it there, the uh, Air Force One plane just drawing to a closer and uh, moving down the runway ahead of that meeting. Fred, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you for your context, as always. Fred Pike in there. As Fred was saying, G7 leaders condemning Russia's airstrike on a shopping mall in central Ukraine, calling the act abominable and a war crime. 18 people are now known to have lost their lives in an attack President Zelensky said was caused by, quote, totally insane terrorists. He's now calling for a UN Security Council meeting to discuss recent events. CNN reporter Osama Abdelaziz is in Kiev for Osama. What more do we know about this attack? Yes, uh, yet another horrifying attack on innocence, Julia. And we understand rescue operations are still underway to try to pull people out of the ruins of that mall. A couple of dozen are still missing. Uh, these search and rescue operations could take up to two days. And what we understand happened, and this is according to President Zelensky, is yesterday afternoon, 
Uh, there was air raid sirens that were heard. About a thousand people were inside that mall. They started to evacuate. They started to flee. That's when Russian missiles struck the building, of course, causing a huge explosion, setting it on fire. So far, 18 people killed, as you mentioned, several others wounded. But the fear is, is that those numbers could increase. They could escalate as these search operations are underway. Now, Russia claims it was targeting a weapons depot, but President Zelensky has been clear here. He says this is an act of terror meant to terrorize the people of Ukraine. He's called for an emergency UN Security Council meeting, and that is going to take place. But Julia, this is really a continuation of a trend that we've seen all through the last few days. As these world leaders have been gathering, first for the G7 and today for NATO, what Russia has done is they have escalated their attacks. They have intensified their assault on Ukraine. They have fired dozens of missiles all across this country, including some that hit here in Kyiv. It feels like a message directly from President Putin to these world leaders that he can strike Ukraine anywhere, anytime. And yes, Ukraine does have some air defense systems, but clearly they're not enough to protect these civilian areas. And I want to point out, Julia, this mall, where it was, it Nowhere near the front line, nowhere near the battle zone, far from where the fighting is taking place. So again, that sense that nowhere in Ukraine is safe. You're going to hear President Zelensky, and he is expected to address those NATO members. You're going to hear him plead for more air defense systems. We are expecting later this week the United States to announce they purchased one such advanced system for Ukraine. But it's all a matter of time here on the ground. It can't arrive soon enough. There is a true feeling that Russia has the momentum and it's using it to terrify Ukrainian civilians. Julia. Mm. And the hope, I think, is that these heartbreaking images focus minds elsewhere in providing more support. Sam Abdelaziz, thank you for that. Meanwhile, between talking tough on inflation while attempting to ease recession fears, the central banks around the world are walking a tightrope. During a speech Tuesday, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde downplayed the risk of a slowdown in the eurozone, but called inflation a huge challenge for monetary policy. In this setting, we need to act in a, a determined and sustained manner, incorporating our principles of gradualism and optionality. This means moving gradually if there is uncertainty about the outlook, but with the option to act decisively to any deterioration in medium-term inflation, especially if there are signs of a de-anchoring of inflation expectations. Anna Stewart joins us now on this. Uh, Christine Lagarde there in the European Central Bank seemingly leaving all options open as far as rate rises are concerned, whatever it takes to tame inflation. Little detail I heard there on the tool that they're going to use, this mechanism to prevent dramatic widening in terms of the borrowing costs for different nations. But I can give you one wild guess, Anna, <laughs> what you think it might be. Oh, this is so sad, Julia. You and I are far too excited by the anti-fragmentation tool. But the ECB did hold an emergency meeting to announce it uh, a week or two ago. And this is what people want detail on. They probably won't get it till next month. Now, raising costs for borrowing across the block, but keeping a lid 
And the bond yields of some countries, particularly Italy, of course, which has high debt levels, is no mean task. How do you do both at the same time, given this will be as the ECB completely ends its asset purchase program? Well, the guess is, Julia, of course, the sterilisation of bond purchases. Now, that is what's widely expected to be announced next month. This has happened before. And we always have to look back, don't we, in the history books of the ECB and other central banks. What have they used before? What works? And what frankly works without ever having been used? Sometimes it's just the announcement itself. Now, this is likely, according to Reuters, and they are citing unnamed sources to look a little bit like the SMP, the Securities Markets Programme, which, if anyone can remember, was introduced in 2010. It was the precursor to another acronym, the OMT. And essentially, this would be a way of buying some bonds, uh, but without injecting new stimulus into the system. It would probably be be offset using the banking system. So no details we have at the moment, but I can tell you, looking at the bond spread between Italy's BTB and the Bund, the 10-year, it has closed significantly just since they announced this tool. And that's really the beauty, isn't it, of these central bank mechanisms. Sometimes it's just the announcement uh, that goes quite a long way to the solution. Yes, you don't fight a buyer that's got a limitless balance sheet. That's the message. Quite potent, the verbal intervention can be and the promise of bond buying, even if you don't have to do much or any at all. Anna Stewart, thank you for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In a major easing of COVID-19 rules, China says quarantine time will be cut for international travellers. New arrivals and domestic close contacts of COVID cases will now have to quarantine for seven days in a government facility, then for three days at home. Strict lockdowns have handicapped China's economy and infuriated millions of people. CNN's Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Selena, for most people, the idea of spending seven days in government-mandated quarantine, and you don't get any choice on that, as you've well told us before, plus three days at home, is prohibitive. But this is a lot less than what was demanded before. Talk us through the new regime and when it will begin, do we know? Yeah, Julia, well, authorities are announcing this new measure, which is a huge sigh of relief to the business community. But still, even though China is slashing the quarantine time for these international travelers, this is not a shift in zero COVID. Authorities are very clear that they are sticking to zero COVID. This does not count as a loosening of restrictions. So we don't know yet when this is going to be implemented. But the government is saying that all international arrivals, they will only need to spend seven days in a government quarantine facility and then an additional three days at home. That is down from 14 or 21 days in some cases in a government quarantine facility and then in some cases additional time of home quarantine. And we had spoken at the end of April when I was in a 21 day quarantine myself. These are strict harsh quarantines, no opening the door, no turning on the AC, only opening the door to get those COVID tests or those food pickups. So yes, while this is a major reduction for many businesses, seven days is still an inconvenience. It is still a hassle. And many are saying that for this policy to actually be effective, China also needs to increase its flight capacity as well as increase the number of flights going in and out of the country. Because right now, flights going in and out are extremely limited. Plus, they were extremely expensive. There's also concern about how this ruling is going to be implemented across the country, how long it's going to take, how evenly these quarantine restrictions are going to be reduced. You know, on top of that, people's lives here, people's movements here within China are still very much restricted. For the parts of China that are considered risky areas, well, residents from those areas, they still have to do additional days of quarantine just to travel to another province or city within China. 
In addition to that, the government has banned all non-essential travel overseas for China's residents. So this is severely limiting the ability of most people here in the country to go in and out. Of course, in major cities like here in Beijing, we've also got to get a recent COVID test in order to enter any public areas, as well as show our green health code. So yes, this is definitely a step in the right direction, especially for these businesses that have been really struggling to get their employees in and out of the country. But no shift here when it comes to that stringent zero COVID policy in this country. Julia. I mean, the first point I'd make here is that it doesn't stop you being trapped at a moment's notice, too, if somebody in your building has COVID. I mean, even if you can get there with just a week or 13 days, whatever it is, 10 days, sorry, seven and three days quarantine, you still have that fear of of being caught if someone has COVID. So um, as far as I'm concerned, just to get this to to be clear on this, this is not a loosening of restrictions. Zero COVID policy is going to be maintained, but it is a loosening of restrictions. Mm-hmm. Selena Wag. Exactly. The threat of being thrown into a facility is always here at all times, Julia, yes. no matter what this international policy travel changes. Yeah, it's still a huge challenge. Selena, thank you. OK, a U.S. congressional committee will hold a surprise hearing today on Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Sources tell CNN lawmakers will hear testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, an aide to former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows. It's not clear what topics they will focus on, but the panel said it would present recently obtained evidence. And a reminder, you can watch the entire congressional hearing right here on CNN, starting at 1 p.m. in Washington. That's 6 p.m. in London, 1 a.m. in Hong Kong. A railroad crossing in rural Missouri is open again following a deadly derailment. At least three people were killed, dozens more injured on Monday after an Amtrak train struck a dump truck near the city of Menden. Preliminary reports indicate the intersection didn't have warning lights or motion gates. The Jordanian government says a toxic gas leak in the port of Aquaba is now under control control. Officials say at least 13 people were killed and more than 250 injured after a tank filled with chlorine gas fell while being transported, causing an explosion. Wow. Okay, still ahead on first move, show me the money. That's what U.S. chip makers. Actually, I'm going to uh, pass you over to NATO now because the Secretary General is making his opening statements. Let's listen in. Climate change poses a serious risk to us all. So therefore, I'm very pleased uh, to be with you today at the first high-level dialogue on climate change and security, bringing together NATO allies with partner nations and other stakeholders from around the world. And I thank you all for being here today. From the high north to the Sahel, climate change is a crisis multiplier. More extreme weather devastates communities and fuels tensions and conflicts. Climate change matters for our security, so it matters for NATO. That is why NATO is determined to set the gold standard on addressing the security implications of climate change. Here in Madrid, leaders will endorse a new strategic concept, the Madrid strategic concept. It will state that climate change is a defining challenge of our time. For NATO, this means three things. Increasing our understanding, 
adapting our alliance and reducing our own emissions. First, increasing our understanding. Today, I am releasing our first ever assessment of how climate change affects our security. Our military assets, installations and activities, as well as our resilience and civilian preparedness. Climate change deeply affects the environment in which our women and men operate. From extreme heat in our training missions in Iraq to melting ice in the Arctic. And from rising sea levels and storms that threaten our naval bases to the hurricanes that disable our airfields. The list is long. There are many ways climate change affects our security. So second, we must adapt. Providing our armed forces with the equipment they need to operate in extreme heat and extreme cold. Training them to assist in disaster relief. Reinforcing our coastal facilities against rising water levels and addressing the security implications of more economic and military activity in the high north. We have identified the initial steps in our adaptation. We now take account of climate change when planning our operations and our missions, and when developing new capabilities. This way, we make sure we remain effective in increasingly harsh environments. And third, we must reduce the impact of our military activities on the climate. We cannot compromise our military effectiveness. NATO is about preserving peace through a credible deterrence and defense. Nothing is more important. If we fail to preserve peace, we will also fail to fight climate change. At the same time, we also have a responsibility to reduce emissions. To this end, we have developed the first methodology for measuring NATO's greenhouse gas emissions, civilian and military. It sets out what to count and how to count it. And it will be made available to all allies to help them reduce their own military emissions. This is vital because what gets measured can get cut. Based on this new methodology, I can announce today the first emission targets for NATO as an organization. By 2030, we will reduce emissions by at least 45%, reducing to net zero by 2050. We have conducted thorough analysis of how to do this. It will not be easy, but it can be done. A big part of this will be our transition away from fossil fuels. All allies are committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions as part of the Paris Agreement. Adapting their militaries will contribute to this, including more green tech 
such as renewables, climate-friendly synthetic fuels, and more energy-efficient solutions. There is a technological revolution happening right now, a green energy revolution, on one that can uh, be of huge uh, benefit for our militaries. Already today, the best new cars are actual electric cars. And I believe that in the future, the most advanced military vehicles and the most resilient armed forces will be those do, that do not rely on fossil fuels. By making our equipment more efficient and by taking full advantage of new technologies, we can improve our militaries and strengthen our security, as well as help tackle climate change. It will also increase our resilience. The war in Ukraine shows the danger of being too dependent on commodities from authoritarian regimes. The way Russia is using energy as a weapon of coercion highlights the need to quickly wean off Russian oil and gas. At the same time, we must not swap one dependency for another. Lots of new green technologies and the rare earth minerals they require come from China. So we must diversify our energy sources and our suppliers. Another risk is creating a patchwork of incompatible systems, where all 30 NATO allies follow their own separate path towards energy security and adoption of new technologies. This would present serious risks to our interoperability. Instead, we should work together to ensure that national policies enhance our collective military strength, and NATO is the ideal platform for allies to coordinate our efforts. By setting shared benchmarks and standards, we can uh, innovate together while maintaining our operational effectiveness. So therefore, I will ask NATO civilian and military authorities to develop a new energy transition by design initiative and present it at the next high-level dialogue meeting next year. These high-level meetings will be held annually, establishing NATO as a nexus between climate and security. Climate change is not a threat that exists far beyond the horizon or long into the future. We see its impact on our security right now. We now have a plan with concrete actions to address the security risks of climate change, to ensure our alliance adapts to the new challenges and to protect NATO's one billion citizens. Thank you so much. We've just been listening to the Negative Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg there talking in Madrid, Spain, ahead of two days of talks. Interesting that he made climate change the focus of his presentation and the fact that it's a crisis multiplier, that it affects our security. He tied it to 
what NATO is going to do over the coming years to move towards net zero by 2050, but also said it poses a number of risks in that the most military, most resilient militaries are those that aren't so reliant on fossil fuels. We've seen what energy reliance on Russia has meant, not only for NATO, of course, but for other nations as well. And he pointed to the fact that a lot of these cleaner technologies rely on rare earth minerals from China, another potential security risk. And that pulls us to the heart of what's going to take place over the next two days in this reshaping repositioning of what NATO represents in terms of security defences and where they see some of the big threats. Russia, of course, first and foremost, central to that. But China also going to be talked about really for the first time, too, in terms of what their rising power represents. Let's talk more about what this is uh, going to mean for NATO today and in the future, of course. I want to uh, bring in our next guest, who is Ambassador Bill Taylor, U.S. Ambassador, former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, William Taylor. So fantastic to have you with us. Um, Ambassador, we can talk about climate change and the relevance, and I think it is very potent, actually, for the challenges that we've seen and faced in recent months with the war in Ukraine. But what do you see in terms of the pivot that they're going to discuss over the next couple of days, and particularly ramping up forces on the eastern flank of NATO nations, and what that will mean? For Russia today and in the future? Julie, you're exactly right. Uh, NATO over the next two days will demonstrate to themselves, to Russia and to the world that, uh, that NATO is focused on the major threat. The biggest threat to security, global security at this point, is clearly Russia. And the NATO summit will address that uh, by moving troops, by pledging assistance to Ukraine, uh, for as long as it takes, as they said in the G7, uh, this will be a commitment that will be important for the Ukrainians to hear as they battle the Russians. Um, and we see that every day, the attacks by the Russians on Ukraine. And so the NATO response is going to be very important over the next two days. I mean, just in the last 24 hours, we've seen this attack on the, the shopping center in central Ukraine and, and President Zelensky saying, look, I want the UN Security Council to, to be talking about this. It, it does focus minds, but the, the ripple effect around the world of higher prices, the energy security issues is something that when President Biden walks into this group again, he has to hold these nations together at a time when they're looking at their own domestic situation and thinking, is perhaps compromise at some point in the near future the answer? And clearly that's perhaps not the best way of, of tackling Russia at this moment. How does President Biden walk into these meetings and, and thread that needle? Because it will pose a, an increasing challenge, I think, maintaining unity. It, it's clearly a big challenge. But so far, President Biden has led this coalition, this international coalition at NATO uh, in Europe, and indeed with the, the East Asian allies. I mean, we see the Australians and the South Koreans and the Japanese, um, the New Zealanders, all, be, all part of this alliance. So President Biden will try to maintain that alliance and keep the focus on, you're exactly right, their challenges, the, your, the energy prices, the food problems. The problem for all of that is Mr. Putin. And, and President Biden will make it clear that it is Putin uh, that is the cause of these problems, and that the way to address Mr. Putin is for Ukraine to win. And he will he will maintain that focus. Uh, he, President Biden will get that security on, and the focus right there that Ukraine has to win, and that will be the issue for NATO. How do you think President Putin 
is perceiving what we'll see from NATO over the next couple of days. As we've mentioned, the heightened security, the promise of increased financing, significant escalation of troop numbers on the border as well. It's the sort of the opposite and antithesis of what he was hoping for and what he wanted to see. Does it change the calculus, do you think, as far as the war in Ukraine is concerned? It should, Julia, you're exactly right. Uh, So NATO is seen now, is demonstrating that it's stronger, more unified. It's about to be larger than ever. Um, And the the support that NATO is giving to Ukraine, I'm sure has surprised President Putin. It's probably surprised other autocratic leaders around the world. I'm thinking of President Xi, who is uh, probably surprised at the strength of the response of of the Western alliance to the aggression by the Russians against Ukraine. So this is having a big effect. Um, President Putin will have to decide um, when he backs off, um, when he looks for a way out. Uh, And the way to push him to find a way out is to have the Ukrainians push him back in Ukraine, push him back towards the boundaries uh, that he violated on the 24th of February. And that's where NATO is so pivotal. And to your point about enlargement as well, of course, discussions between uh, Finland, Sweden and Turkey set to take place over the next couple of days too, to see whether there's a breakthrough there on Turkey's uh, concerns about the further enlargement of NATO. We shall see. William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time today. Great to chat to you. Okay, after the break, there's radio silence from Washington on a lifeline for the semiconductor industry. It's called the CHIPS Act. But what happened? Did it get frozen or fried? We'll discuss next. Welcome back to First Move. From supply chain challenges to the cost of living crises exacerbated by the Ukraine war, the global economy has much to contend with right now. Yet one rare victory for American manufacturing was heralded as a $50 billion investment opportunity for the semiconductor industry as it struggles to meet worldwide demand. The bipartisan deal known as the CHIPS Act was announced a year ago to much fanfare, but since then there seems to have been little progress. The political paralysis is now starting to bite. Intel postponing a groundbreaking ceremony in Columbus, Ohio, in a project worth up to $20 billion. Also waiting for the act to pass, U.S.-based Global Foundries, the world's largest U.S.-based independent semiconductor foundry with facilities in Vermont, New York, Germany and Singapore. And Tom Caulfield is Global Foundries CEO and he joins us now. Tom, always fantastic to have you on the show. You know, the politics aside, and we can't set it aside, but I will, I can't help but feeling this is a little ridiculous. Either there's an emergency and the chip shortage is a threat to national security, which the government has said it is, or or it isn't. Um, why can't we get this deal done? Yeah, no, I know. I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is this is a, a national security issue, supply chain issue, uh, and an economic issue for for the country. Uh, I'm probably more optimistic than most that this will get done uh, before the August recess. I, I would tell you on the other end of that, if it doesn't get done by August, we probably lost another year in the, in, in the process. How optimistic are you? Uh, I'd say very optimistic. I would handicap Ooh. it that there's more of a, more of an opportunity for this to get passed and we could start moving forward uh, versus it not happening. Look, I, you know, for, for us and, and for, I'm sorry, for us and, no, and, and, please, and yeah. others, I think it's about accelerating creating capacity, not necessarily doing or not doing it. And, you know, GF will continue to invest in our in our global footprint worldwide, including the U.S. But for the U.S. to catch up, 
uh, they'll need to help with this, the catalyze and acceleration of capacity. Okay, so there's two things there. So I'll take them in turn. The first thing is competitiveness, and then the second thing is investment. I mentioned in the introduction that Intel had decided to suspend its groundbreaking plans in Ohio while it waited to get further clarity on what's going to happen here, because it is. We're talking over $50 billion worth of investment for the sector. You also have planned investment in Malta, New York City, as I mentioned, in New York State. Um, are you rethinking that? If this deal doesn't happen, are you going to adjust your plans for that investment? Are the consequences that big? Yeah, I mean, the consequences are you know, the rate and pace at which we would expand our right. U.S. footprint. Uh, you know, over the over the coming decade, of course, we will. We need to continue to grow our capacity to meet you know, the industry needs, our customer needs. But to accelerate where we make those investments, the U.S. chip acts is important. Right. It would make us prioritize the investments in the U.S. versus other regions of, of the world where we have a global footprint, as you noticed. And by the way, as you can see, maybe from my backdrop, I'm actually at that New York facility in upstate New York uh, broadcasting today with you. Yes. So it is there. It's just waiting for, uh, for further investment. To, to your point, you do have other options. You've already in the past year announced further increases in investment in Singapore. Germany's also an option. And that circles back to my point that you made, which is about competitiveness. The EU has managed to sign their own version of, of the CHIPS Act. Other of your competitors are ramping up investment in Europe in particular as a result. Tom, is that the option? Do you pull some of the investment that you would have made in the United States and say, hey, we'll do more in Singapore or we'll make, do more in Germany if necessary? So uh, a couple of things, let me unpack that. First is I think one of our competitive advantages, we already have a global footprint and that's very important for supply chain security around the globe. Others are, are gonna try to you know, get caught up on that, that global footprint. And for us, we look at the economics to create capacity so we can do it in the most capital efficient way for ourselves and our, and our customers. And you mentioned you know, you know, last week I was in Singapore. We broke ground a year ago in a new factory. Um, amazing what the team has done. We put the first manufacturing tool in that facility just last week. In Dresden, we've made a, a number of, uh, of, of investments to you know, more than triple our output there over the last three years. And so now we're looking for where's that next opportunity to create capacity for GF. We have a global footprint. We will always do something within that footprint. And the opportunity for the chips bill is to make that, that an acceleration in our, in our, in our U.S. Uh, footprint. What do you want U.S. Congress to know about this decision? To your point, you're saying if this doesn't get done by the August recess, then the likelihood is with the midterms and perhaps the challenges here in the United States, this decision doesn't get made for a year. It could even be longer. Let's be honest, Tom. What does Congress need to know over the next few weeks about the importance of this decision? Yeah, I've heard the expression. This is kind of, you know, our, our Pearl Harbor moment. This is the time to act. And, 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 and let me tell you why. If you look at since these discussions started 2019 to where we are today, if we look at the capacity that's been announced and added, the rest of the world has added more capacity in the U.S. So we started with a problem where 50 percent of the worldwide demand for semiconductors comes through U.S. headquartered companies, but only 12 percent manufactured here. We've actually lost ground on that over the last three years. And another year delay is not going to make that any better. So the, the, the sense of urgency really needs to be there. This is the time. Let's get it done. And then the rest of us can do our part to add that capacity. 
You know, we, you and I have sp spoken many times now about the supply-demand imbalance and the time it takes to uh, sort of untangle some of the wrinkles in the supply chain. I spoke to Intel CEO back in in January, and he said, "Look, he sees the problem pushing out now into 2024." Do you agree? Is that the kind of timeline we're talking about? Short-term issues rather than the longer term, as we've just been discussing. Well, let me you know, instead of trying to predict the time, let me tell you the dynamic. We entered this year as an industry with, I'd say, eight to nine percent mismatch, more that much more demand than supply. The world's putting on capacity at the rate of about five percent growth compounded over the coming years. But at the same time, demand is growing about that, that same amount or twice that. So I see that for the better part of the next eight to 10 years, you know, the supply demand mismatch will get better, but it's going to take time for it to, to, to actually close where there's a, there's a perfect balance there. And that's why it's important for the acceleration of these investments uh, uh, to, create, to create the supply the world needs. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that sort of lays out the challenge, I think, perfectly at this moment and the business prospect, of course, for, for your business. Very quickly, what we have seen, though, is yours and other tech companies, chip makers, share prices take a real pummeling over recent weeks. And I think part of that is concerned that the economic slowdown that we're facing, the rising rates, central banks trying to take action to entertain prices, is going to weigh on demand. The Sort of counter to that, of course, is that it perhaps helps that supply-demand imbalance that we're talking about. How much of a dent do you see in demand as a result of the potential and slowing that we're already seeing, Tom, or is it sort of too insignificant to worry about amid the greater challenges of um, supply shortages? Yeah, look, um, it's, it's a great question. I would say it the following way. At our earnings call uh, not too long ago from our first quarter results, we pointed to the fact that we started this year with a huge amount of uh, unfulfilled demand, you know, almost 20, 25% of uh, uh, more we could have done this year for our customers. So any of the, the, the softness we're all seeing in, in say, low-end handsets and uh, uh, personal compute is being more than offset to kind of carry more capacity for the customers who we were, you know, woefully under-supporting. Mm. And so, you know, as we look forward, we're, we're, still, we're still trying to produce as much as we can. Our factories are running it. 100% utilization and, and, and still trying to catch up to uh, the demand in front of us. Yeah, no shortage in that, certainly. Tom, great to have you with us. And fingers crossed you're right with what you're hearing on uh, hopes for this CHIPS Act in the uh, very near term. Thank you, the CEO of Global Foundries there. Great to chat, as always. Okay, after the break, zero COVID lockdown hurt China's economy. I speak to the CEO of the largest in-country collector of private data in China. What's really going on and what does the road to recovery look like? Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. China has eased stringent lockdown measures. Overnight, it said quarantine times are being slashed for foreign visitors and people who have had close contact with COVID patients. The big questions, of course, now are how damaging were those lockdowns really to the economy and to jobs? How quickly can it recover? And what will it mean for global supply chains and the global inflation crisis? Who better to discuss this with than Leila Miller, CEO of the China Beige Book, the largest in-country collector of private sector data in China. Leila and fantastic to have you on the show. You know, we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the lockdowns in Beijing and in Shanghai, but your data suggests it was far worse and broader. What does your data tell us about the impact? 
Well, we talked about uh, conditions in April and May. Almost everyone was talking about Shanghai, 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 because you had a huge, uh, nearly roughly two-month major lockdown. Some of it still continues a bit. Uh, And so everyone thought this is about a couple of big cities. But what was interesting in the national data is to see all the secondary implications of these lockdowns, not just in the ports, not just on the coast, but basically nationally. So you had much lower growth in other regions which were not part of the highlights for this for these COVID lockdowns. And and what, what that means is, is that growth in the second quarter was actually much weaker than what was being reflected in a lot of the data, particularly data that basically focuses on a couple big cities on the coast. And then you know, the assumption is everything else was okay. Everything else was not okay in April and May. And even though things may get better in June, uh, this is still this is still quite a hole to dig, the, they'll need to dig themselves out of. How big a hole? Because to your point, it was broad in terms of sectors as well, the services sector, the manufacturing data. um, And it gives us a very different picture, I think, from the traditional data that we received from from China about the, the negative impact of what we saw. Right, right. Well, the the assumption is that you know lockdowns are ending in June or ended in June, and so uh, you're going to have this powerhouse bounce back as the country gets gets back up to speed uh, and back to normalcy. Uh, that did not happen in the June data. So you have an issue where all this this talk about a month to month improvement, sure, things got better from May to June, but you're, you're going to have a uh, you know you don't have the bounce back that a lot of people are talking about. Uh, and secondly, when you're talking about the the second quarter growth overall things were significantly deeper and darker in, in, in April and May. So you have a contraction in growth for the second quarter. Uh, there's no possibility that Beijing announces that. Um, you know, there's probably going to see a, a, a very strong, uh, a relatively strong GDP number simply because uh, officials in recent weeks have declared that there shall be reasonable growth. There mm. will be uh, th- there will be these readings. And so you're going to have economic numbers reflect that uh, that political sensitivity. Yes, and there's a, a disconnect between the underlying fundamentals and what appears on the uh, on the surface. I think the assumption in these kind of conditions is that stimulus will follow, credit conditions will loosen. But your data suggests not only um, a lack of support from looser lending conditions, but actually for a significant chunk of some of these small and medium sized enterprises, um, prohibitively higher borrowing costs. So we've not seen the stimulus and actually credit conditions have tightened. Right. One of the, one of the one of the ways to guide this narrative forward, if you're if you're trying to guide market and uh, guide money into the Chinese markets right now, is to say big stimulus is happening, the recovery is happening, and so you're seeing monetary and fiscal stimulus, and just claim it's happening. You know, we track this very closely, and on the fiscal stimulus side, which has gotten a lot of attention, uh, we're not seeing this. This uh, we did not see any type of Q- Q2 uh, jump. Well, jury's out on Q3. You know, transportation construction, which is our fiscal spending uh, proxy, it decelerated. Our other construction subsectors, they decelerated. Copper, steel decelerated. Aluminum fell off a cliff. So we were not seeing fiscal stimulus spending in any any significant way in the second quarter. Monetary wow. stimulus, also very tight conditions. So there is improvement. We, you know, there will be improvement going forward, but there's not the stimulus wave that people are claiming is happening. It's just not happening right now. This has political consequences, too, ahead of um vitally important meetings in the final quarter of this year. And my concern for the global economy is if we're not seeing this bounce back in activity in China, what happens to the global inflationary picture and the supply chain imbalances that we're still dealing with when suddenly China wakes up and starts stimulating perhaps and it adds fuel to the fire of all of these things? Is that a possibility? 
Well, yeah, so that's that's a really interesting question. You know, if you look in our inflation data for the second quarter, we, we saw domestic disinflation simply because demand uh, was was crushed by the lockdowns. But the concern, as you were mentioning, outside outside China is that it, there will be a surge of inflation coming from China, either because supply shocks from the lockdowns, you know, have have strangled uh, strangled supply and caused inflation elsewhere, uh, particularly you know U.S. ports or or, or, or you know, uh, parts of the supply chain. Uh, second, secondly, though, if you do see a major economic bounce back in China, you know that would lend itself to to, to greater demand, commodities inflation, et cetera. So there's the threat of 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 there's a dual headed threat of inflation coming from China. Our second quarter data were, were, were actually uh, pretty miraculous, and they seem to thread the needle. So the, the Federal Reserve is going to be very happy to, to see this. Uh, there was not, you know, the supply shocks tamped, uh, tamped down, but the demand didn't rocket up. It was sort of a moderate recovery compared to some of what you're reading about. And so the inflationary, uh, the inflationary dynamics coming out of China in terms of China exporting inflation were rather mild all in all. Uh, but this could change dramatically. China could get much better in the third and fourth quarters, and you could see that surge in inflation. Or you could see a return of COVID lockdowns, supply get crunched again. You could see inflation from that direction. So this is a very tenuous balance right now, but it just happens to look good this moment. Yeah, another tightrope. We need to see your next month's data. Leyland, come back and see us soon. Leyland Miller, the CEO of China Beige Book. Thank you, sir. More after this. Pleasure. Welcome back to First Move and a green start for U.S. stocks today. Energy stocks, in fact, leading the charge. We've also got major U.S. banks rallying after boosting dividends. Tech, as you can see, the relative underperformer. However, it is a special day in the tech world. Elon Musk, the world's richest man, turning 51. Improving the world is a task he does not shun, and his plan for Mars alone continues to stun. His bot battle with Twitter, however, not yet won. Perhaps this year he'll even ponder a political run. And as for the fabulous May Musk, well, she must be one proud mom of all of her children, of course. But happy birthday, Elon Musk. And that's it for the show. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.